Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I am joined with Chris today. It is an episode for the first time ever, ladies and gentlemen, with an episode of me and Chris running History Hack. Chris, talk to us. Who have we got today? Morning, Alina. Today we have got John Willis, who is a TV executive, formerly director of programming at Channel 4 and factual and learning at the BBC, and has written two books, including Churchill's Few and Secret Letters of the Battle of Britain. And he is here today to talk about his new book, Nagasaki, The Forgotten Prisoners, which I had the joy of reading over the weekend. And it's really interesting. John, how are you doing this morning? Yeah, good. Well, thank you. And thanks for inviting me. I'm actually really looking forward to this because, you know, obviously spending so much time on the Eastern Front, I kind of get a chance to kind of dabble because I do. I really enjoyed reading a lot about Japan and China and that kind of area. And this is something completely new to me. Obviously, we all know about the bomb, but the your book is not quite necessarily about that, which is really interesting. So let's just jump straight into this because I'm I'm raring to go. So the British role in the war in the Far East is often overlooked, but British possessions in Malay at the, uh, at the same time as Pearl Harbor. Why did Japan want war with Britain? I, I don't think it was Britain that it wanted war with, but what it want, wanted was what Britain possessed, which was... Uh, a mineral-rich empire. And it wasn't just Britain, it was the Dutch Empire too. Japan at that time was doesn't have a lot of natural resources. Uh, it was under an embargo after uh, a conflict in China, a war with China. So the rest of the world would put it in an embargo situation, not dissimilar probably to what's happening here with Russia now. And it was really feeling the pinch. It had to feed its people. It had to drive its industry and it had to drive its war machine. So it decided that the only way of doing that was basically to take as much of the East Indies um, and Asia as it could, because in places like Malaya, there was rubber and iron ore, Java had loads of oil, and it needed this to give oxygen to the, the whole nation. On top of that, there was a kind of second, more 
philosophical, almost spiritual reason, which is that it believed that it was a great nation. It believed that it had a destiny to um, to be the senior nation amongst uh, all of Asia. So it set up a scheme called the Greater uh, Asia Prosperity Scheme, which was really uh, a, a way of making all the Asian nations think that they would benefit from Japan's military activity, although Japan, of course, would be the main beneficiary. So it believed it had a destiny to, to lead that part of the world, but it also needed the minerals. So the Japanese wrapped up Malaya and Java fairly quickly. They knocked out the RAF in Malaya in the first few days. Singapore then falls, which is possibly uh, Great Britain's greatest defeat in the Second World War. Then the Prince of Wales goes down along with the repulse. Suddenly the Japanese find themselves with a large amount of British and Australian and Dutch prisoners. Were they ready for these numbers? What was going to await these prisoners? Uh, I think that they were completely unprepared. There you have an army that came through in just a few weeks. It travelled 650 miles from the north of Malaya down and took Singapore inside six weeks, which was astonishing for an army. They were armed with some tremendous aeroplanes and tanks, but they were also moving on bicycles through jungle. Uh, And I think they were amazed at the end how many captives they had. And of course, they also had a philosophy that surrender was dishonourable, not just to those who surrendered, but to their families. So they were surprised to find... I think throughout the whole Japanese empire, there was 140,000 military prisoners, plus about the same number of civilians. So suddenly you've got to house them, feed them, make sure they have work. How do you manage all that on top of fighting a war? So I think that they were completely unprepared and it took quite a long time for both sides, the prisoners and the and the guards, as it were, to work out what the what the rules were, what the borders were between what behaviour was acceptable and what's unacceptable, what you should do and what you shouldn't do, what you had to do to survive and what you definitely shouldn't do um, if you weren't going to survive. So it, it was, it was it's particularly to begin with, it was really quite a grey, quite a grey area. In terms of what they found, at the beginning, it was, most of them were, uh, most of them caught in, who were captured in Singapore and, and in Java too, finished up in Changi uh, prison camp, which was the old British war barracks in Singapore. And it had squash courts, a cinema. Uh, it, it was in great parkland, but it was completely overrun by so many prisoners. And after a few days of eating the supplies in the larder of corned beef, there was only rice supplied and really low-grade rice at that supplied by the Japanese to eat. So... Um, from what seemed to begin with like a reasonably comfortable place to be, turned out to be quite tough. And there was a lot of dysentery, malaria and other tropical diseases. And quite quickly, the Japanese asserted themselves. There were four prisoners, uh, two Australians and two British who had escaped, not from Changi, but from elsewhere, were captured. And they were, they were executed on the beach. They were shot on the beach for escaping as a, as a warning to everyone else. So um, in these early days, they were, everyone was working out what, what was possible and what was, what was not possible. It's probably a mean question, but they, the Japanese had had POWs in the First World War when the Germans surrendered at Tsingtao 
and these prisoners were treated quite quite well. It's almost as it seems like Japan had forgotten the lessons that they'd had from just 20 years beforehand. I, I, I agree with you. I think it was. Um, uh, it is strange that their reputation in the First World War was, you know, was was reasonably good as uh, as uh, a nation that lived by the international rules and conventions of how you treated prisoners, uh, but not in the Second World War. And I think probably in the intervening time, Japan as a nation had become more dominated by the military, more money was spent on, on weaponry um, and hardware. Uh, and I think that there was um, a, a toughening up, as it were, um, in, in Japan during, during that time. And it had already made itself an international pariah because um, uh, of an invading China, Pearl Harbor. It, it was already outside the sort of international norms and it behaved accordingly. But in the First World War, they were fine. I'm going to throw in another reference here. And that's to do with every time you speak about the conditions, for me, it just shouts German concentration camps and you know, executing people who had escaped, for example, and the living conditions, it is almost a form of extermination, but indirect extermination, living in a, in a prison of war camp in, in Japan. Yes, I, I, at the beginning, this was, this was, this was the easy bit. Uh, as one Australian prisoner said, you, you could win the bad luck lottery, you could, you could be shifted out to build the Thai Burma Railway, um, or to work in Japan, or both, um, or you could stay in Changi during the war. And although there wasn't much food and it was a bit boring, at least you were you, you were safe. But of course, by by not feeding, not by not feeding its thousands of prisoners adequately, while expecting them all over the Japanese Empire to do tremendously hard work in shipyards, building runways, building railways but not being fed properly and they're not being given enough medicine when they were ill meant that the death numbers were were high. And although it wasn't extermination in the sense of the Holocaust um, of what was happening in, uh, in concentration camps, nonetheless, uh, it was, it ran that, it ran that, uh, you know, quite a close second, I think, in terms of the horror. You mentioned the railway and the hard luck lottery. What were the conditions like and were they particularly harsh? Well, I think that of all the spheres uh, during this conflict, uh, probably the railway has been the one that's been written about most. And whatever you think the conditions were, they were in fact worse than that, <laughs> I'm sure. But they were told in Changi, don't worry, you're going you know, up country, there'll be uh, better food, better health care, it'll be better. And at his extreme, they had to march... They, they, they went up there in cattle trucks, steamy cattle trucks, stopped once or twice a day, took four or five days, six days to get there. Uh, they were crammed together. There was hardly any room to move. And then when they got there, the conditions were terrible. And then straight away, for most of them, they had to march up to the, the temporary camps beside where the railway was going to be built, going up from Thailand up into Burma. And so um, these men who were already quite underfed, had to march through the jungle, sometimes in the monsoon. One, one, one group from F, F Force marched nearly 200 miles. Uh, it took them a long time. Uh, they didn't have adequate footwear, no, nowhere to sleep at, at night. So the conditions getting there were bad. 
when they got there, it, it, it was appalling. They had to work, particularly at a period they called the Speedo period, where the Japanese got desperate to finish this railway line and push them harder and harder. They were working 12, 14, 16 hours a day, um, quite often through the night. One of the prisoners described the working through the night with with fires and braziers, and he said it was like a version of hell. These men had, we just had little loincloths, uh, nothing on their feet, so they worked incredibly hard. And then, of course, there was the risk of um, of tropical diseases. Lots of them got tropical got tropical ulcers, dysentery, malaria, berry berry. So there was very little medical care for them. And then it really got lethal when cholera hit. Because on the railway, in a way, under reported, there were lots of what they called remushas, which were locals from neighbouring Asian countries like Burma that had been bribed, persuaded, bullied into working on the railway. And their conditions were quite similar to those of the prisoners, but they probably didn't have the organisational and medical care. But I think that's probably where cholera began. And cholera and particularly without any medicine, is uh, is lethal. And the descriptions in the book um, uh, and the sources that I use for the book of the cholera epidemics are um, incredibly haunting. There was the story of the monsoons coming and flooding the toilet pits, leading to maggots all over the floor. It's, it sounds horrific. Yeah, well, that, that was uh, when I said at the beginning that whatever you've read about it, it was worse. Because mm. when you read about it, you're reading a snapshot and then you turn the page these men had to live this for month after month, year after year. There was a saying that for every sleeper on the line was a life lost. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. No, that's that's what um, that's what that's what said. I don't know how many sleepers there, but you know, twelve thousand um, or so died. So yes. We tend to really forget how cruel the Japanese were. When we talk about World War Two, we tend to focus on Europe and very Europe centric. And we talk about the Holocaust, which I'm not saying we shouldn't, but we do. We talk about the Holocaust, talk about concentration camps. We sometimes talk about Siberia, but we never talk about what happened in Burma, what happened in Thailand. We talk, we don't talk about any of that. And we just tend to forget. And listening to you speak now about these conditions, is it's just horrific. Yeah, it is. Well, I think that that's partly why I called you know, my book Nagasaki The Forgotten Prisoners, because... Um, yes, they were forgotten in Nagasaki, but I think they felt forgotten before then. There were very few Red Cross parcels, unlike in camps in Germany, the Red Cross parcels, prison camps in Germany, Red Cross parcels were pillaged by the Japanese. Very few got through. Um, so they felt forgotten. And a bit like the point you make uh, uh, about the Holocaust, because VJ Day was several months after VE Day, they were they were a postscript, but by the time they got back, the survivors got back from Japan. The war in Europe had been over for several months, and people just knitted together the threads of their own lives. They got married, had children, started their jobs up again, and suddenly these men arrive, um, still pretty skeletal off the boats, and people really didn't want to hear their stories. So they 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 felt forgotten. And I agree, it's a theatre of war that you know, that takes second place. And yet uh, what happened there was extraordinary. And of course, you know, it was also um, actually you know, crit- critical in the outcome of the war. Absolutely. My granddad was in Burma and he never spoke of it at all. 
And my best friend's granddad was a radio operator. And he used to say that the last bullet in your gun was for yourself because they, he had heard of the torture and the shock of being a prisoner. Yes, uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think there were some people like, like your grandfather who never spoke about it. Uh, and some, some prisoners didn't speak about it for decades. And then finally, uh, as they were nearing the, the end of their lives, their children, their grandchildren started hearing the stories and wanted to, to write them down. Um, it might only be in letters or emails or unpublished diaries or little memoirs that were self-published. But it was only really towards the, the end that people started to come to terms with it and speak about it because lots of people just refused to speak about it because they didn't. it was too horrible to speak about and they didn't want to. They want to upset their families. You come home and you don't really want to tell your parents or your wife or your children what you've actually lived through, what really happened. They don't want to imagine that. In popular culture, get more movies on Europe rather than the Far East and then not many from the British point of view. But we do have Alec Guinness in A Bridge Over the River Kwai. And you did mention this, but he had basis in Colonel Toosey who had an impact on keeping his men alive. I, I think I think the it's interesting that our our knowledge and views of what happened under the Japanese is shaped by popular culture, but there's very little about it within popular culture. But this film, as an Oscar-winning major Hollywood film uh, made by great British director David Lean, does loom large and it casts a big shadow over what happened. That that's how lots of people have learnt about this theatre of war is through that film. And like any Hollywood film, quite a lot of it is made up. There weren't any Americans in the camp. There weren't lots of um, scantily clad maidens who helped you know, helped the, here, the destruction of, of, of the bridge. That's not how it happened. But Philip Tuzzi, who, who, who ran it, and of course was easily mistaken for Alan Guinness in the film, was very different. He was in a public school and um, a, a merchant banker. So he, and he was, he, in class terms, he was, he was different. But he really brilliantly trod the line between being helpful to the Japanese and protecting his men. And his one aim was to ensure that as many of his men lived. Um, and so he would, on one hand, there'd be encouragement for gentle acts of sabotage to slow the bridge down. On the other hand, he might make sure that the bridge was actually being built. So he, he, he worked both sides. Uh, and the benefit was that uh, the death rate on the bridge on the River Kwai was, was, was lower and they didn't get any cholera there. Uh, he was very strict about, um, about health care and hygiene and all that. So I think he probably was a pretty exceptional man. And I was talking to someone the other day who's now uh, 102, who was on the River Kwai, and he said he was, you know, he was a he was a a, a, a great man, and without him, lots more would have um, lots more would have died. So, uh, unlike the film, it's very interesting because as the war progressed, needs shifted, especially towards prisoner of war labour, which had to be brought back to the home islands. Can you talk us through what the conditions were like on the hell ships? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, I, I think that reading and talking to the children of lots of prisoners apart from the bomb which was uh, extraordinary the two things that stand out and there was lots of horror in Changi and lots of horror in different places were was the building of the railway because of the jungle conditions were so terrible and they were you know they were really badly looked after and the hell ships and again the hell ships I don't think a terribly well-known part of uh, of this story there's been a couple of books but not much else so basically they were transported in rusting hulks of ships from usually from singapore to japan in convoys so quite often with oil tankers and vital supplies and they were sent to japan to provide the labor as as, as japan the war was ebbing away from japan there were You know, less Jap- a lot of Japanese soldiers were fighting or had been killed, so they needed labor to drive their war effort. So thousands of people were sent in these ships, and they were put down in the hold, you know, hundreds or thousands of them uh, in some cases. And there was no room, absolutely no room to move. Um, one of them said it was like jelly. You just had to sort of go, you know, wobble, 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 wobble about. You couldn't. You, there was there was virtually no room. You might get on deck uh, once a day, or you might get on deck to go to the toilet. The toilet were just sort of cages that were strapped on the outside of the ship, uh, and obviously were terrible. And as as um, the main character of my book says, there wasn't there weren't long queues to use the toilet facilities. They were so they were so ghastly. Food was just lowered down. A bit of rice or a bit of watery soup was just was lowered down in in buckets. So the conditions were indescribable, I think. And there were men with dysentery. Just, I think the conditions were unbearable. And then on top of all that, there was the danger of torpedoing. And several hell ships were torpedoed by the Americans and a, a couple by the British. And the loss of life then was, you know, was very, very high. And they lived, they lived in, in, fear, in fear of it. There were cases of surviving prisoners having been kind of blown out of the water. They were just holding on to bits of flotsam and jets and bits of wood, uh, banisters, chairs, toilets, you know, anything to hold on to. There were a few uh, rafts that, that were available for the prisoners, but the lifeboats were mainly taken by the Japanese. So there was not much there. And some of them had to survive. I think the maximum was about six days, you know, in the scorching heat. No, no water, no food, but some did survive uh, that long. 
the Japanese uh, were pretty brutal to the, the prisoners. Uh, some, some, in a way, it was it's so typical, really, that some Japanese uh, captains of ships rescued and some threw them back in the water. Some uh, were shot by, by their rescuers. The really lucky ones, the ones who were rescued by the Americans, but bizarrely, the Americans having sunk the boats by torpedo a few days later were back in the area and were staggered to see little life rafts or little groups of people with splayed across bits of bits of wood and were amazed to find that they were allied prisoners. They said, does anyone speak English? Would, would the, said, said the American submariners to the group of people who'd been in the... And they said, we all effing speaking, speak English was basically the reply. And they were staggered to find that they were Australians and, 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 and British. So um, they were the really lucky ones because they, their war was over. They could go home. Uh, the ones who were picked up by the Japanese finished up, a lot of them finished up um, heading to Nagasaki, in Nagasaki. So it, it was, I, for me, it's one of those vivid bits, bits of the book. I, 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 it's, like a, it's like a feature film because you just can't believe that this is a real story, that people can put up with such a terrible conditions and then finish up in, in, in the open sea for so, for so many days. And people had different ways of surviving. There was suddenly there might be an outbreak of singing and people would be suddenly you'd hear in the, in the echoing the distance, someone singing God Save the Queen or, or Waltzing Matilda. Um, and, and then everyone would start singing to cheer themselves up and then everyone would get depressed again. So it was, um, it was an extraordinary survival story. So when they got to Nagasaki... There are several camps already waiting for them. What sort of work were they needed to do? And were they an improvement on what they had been had experienced already? I think that if you had a sort of league table of camps, then there's no doubt that the ones in Nagasaki were better than being on a hell ship and, and better than being on the railway, but worse than Changi and some of the prison camps in uh, in other parts, in, in Java or, or Singapore, earlier on. So basically, they were in Nagasaki, big port city, home of Mitsubishi, who built for the Japanese. Were building oil tankers, warships, torpedoes, aircraft. So the Allies were brought in to replace disappeared Japanese workers and to continue building all these machines of, of war. And it was better in that they were in a city, they were in camps that were not flimsy bits of bamboo by, by the River Kwai, but actually were solid. But the, it was long, hard hours uh, working. They were working in things like riveting ships, and there, were no, there, was, you know, there was no training in any sense of the word. So they were carrying big rivet guns up high. It was easy to have an accident. So um, I think the work was very tough. They just went then, they worked all day. They went back to the camp, had a bit of rice. There were, the conditions in the camps were better, but there were lots of lice and fleas. And so they spent a long time trying to you know, clean their bedding, slept, and then the, the whole wretched business started again the next day. So I think the conditions were, um, were, were hard, 
But by then, I suspect that the, those who had survived were, um, I didn't say they were the natural survivors, but they'd learned how to survive. So they, they would steal out of, out of the, the food waste bin, they'd steal some carrots or sometimes if they were clever, they'd break into the, uh, you know, they'd just find a way of breaking into the storehouse and getting a couple of tins of something. They, they'd worked out what they had to do to manage and to survive. But it was, it was, it was a very, um, it, it was very tough. And they'd been prisoners for a long time. Uh, most of them had been picked up in 1942. So by the time we get to 1945, they'd been prisoners for more than three years. So they'd had a lot of deprivation. They had to endure a lot. And Nagasaki was just for them, the, you know, the, the, last, the, the last chapter. I'm curious to know, I mean, how do we know about the conditions of the prisoners? Because I mean, did they record their experiences in any way? Um, there's, there's, um, it was seen as um, quite a dangerous thing to do to keep notes or write a diary because the Japanese would see it as some kind of spying. And information, receiving information was, was also dangerous. In one of the camps in Nagasaki, um, an American you know, was locked up and badly beaten because he brought, he'd found a scrap of Japanese newspaper in the shipyard and brought it into the camp. So information, um, uh, they didn't really want the prisoners to know about the progress of the war elsewhere, partly because the Japanese were losing, were losing it um, at that. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, at, that, at that particular point. So um, the, the, the scraps of diaries that were kept were, were hidden really carefully. One, not in Nagasaki, but in another camp, one Irish doctor wrote the, 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 the riskier bits of his diary in Irish. There are a couple of examples of, of Australians who buried summaries or the diaries themselves in the graves of people who died so that the Japanese would never catch them. Uh, I think that by this stage, they got quite adept at hiding so uh, whether it was food or, or, or diaries, they were, they were hidden. So um, there were, there's a handful of diaries. Obviously, when people came back, they, they talked about what happened. There were interviews by, particularly in the US, by, by war crimes tribunals. I tried to establish whether any war crimes had happened. So there is a, a reasonable amount of, of evidence about what happened in the two camps in Nagasaki, what actually happened in the camps. Were the guards uniformly brutal? Uh, coming back to Europe, you get the stereotypical guards who were strict, then the other guards who were lenient, who would let you play baseball. Were the Japanese guards negligent or uniformly brutal? Um, I think that they weren't uniformly. I think you've got to understand that if you're in the Japanese military, being a guard on the Thai-Burma railway is the lowest of the low in military terms. You know, you are, you're not going to, you're, you're not um, considered to be clever enough or fit enough to fight on the front line. So you were not getting the highest level of guards. I mean, probably anywhere in the, in, in, in the empire. 
So, and there was a, gar- a barrier because, of course, with Germany, people could speak a bit of German or French or English. But of course, you know, the culture and the language of Japan to the Aussies and the Americans and the, the Brits was, 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 was very different. So there was a lot of misunderstanding. But there was a, you know, a huge amount of, there was a huge amount of cruelty. And some of it was just so unnecessary. How would you build, if you don't feed people, how do you expect them to build your ships or build your railways at the River Kwai? if you don't keep them fit with medicine. So after the war, there were people found um, in one of the camps in Nagasaki, huge tranches of medicine um, that had never been given to the workers, um, i.e. the prisoners. Uh, And there were lots of cases of pneumonia in particular in the camps in Nagasaki. And they had the medicines, but they didn't hand them out. So uh, I think there was a lot of cruelty in that way. Um, and, and there was obviously quite some people who were sadistic and um, there were, you know, executions and, uh, and, and beatings. But of course, that's always peppered with acts of, acts of humanity, either from civilians. There was a, and it was a dangerous thing for a civilian in Nagasaki to give food. They didn't much themselves to give food to prisoners, but some of them did. It might only be orange peel, something as simple as that. But that was... For someone living on a diet of rice, a piece of orange peel was in a magnificent feast. And there were some guards who, who, who were kind. In the main camp in Nagasaki, closest to the bomb, from day one, there was, um, he was called Tajima. And uh, he was, when they arrived, um, he, he, he saw that some of them were ill and, you know, tried to get medical treatment. He would tell them um, secretly the war in Europe is over or this is what's happening. So there were, there were, of course, humane and kindly guards and, you know, Japanese people are the same probably as any other nation. There's, there's good and bad, but it, inevitably um, the majority were, um, were pretty, were, were, were pretty brutal. And there was in Japan, there's quite a hierarchy. So it's a very hierarchical um, uh, culture. So if you were at the bottom of that ladder, and the only people below you in the ladder were the prisoners. Well, if you were kicked by the officers, you as an ordinary Japanese guard would then kick the people below you, which were the prisoners. So we're in 1945. Prisoners are in Nagasaki. Let's bring the conversation round to the bomb and about the bombing. So tell us why was Nagasaki selected and how was the raid carried out? Well, I think just to say at the beginning, I think that obviously... A crucial part of my book is about Nagasaki because I think that is the that is the truly forgotten story that we had Allied prisoners in Nagasaki when the bomb dropped, and they are the only Western, the only non-Japanese witnesses ever to what happened on the ground when an atomic bomb explodes. So their testimony, I think, is extraordinarily valuable, which is why I put it in in uh, in the book. So. Nagasaki, uh, as a as a major industrial and military city, was on a longish list of you know six or eight uh, places that could be bombed. But it was not the target that day. Another Japanese town city in the north of the island of Kyushu, um, Nagasaki is in the south, called Kokura, which was the main arsenal for the Japanese military, was the target. But as the as the American plane looked for the target, it couldn't see it. 
it's never been quite clear whether it was smoke from previous bombings or, or cloud or a mixture of the two, but they couldn't see the target. And by that point, they're running low on fuel because the whole operation was um, uh, fraught with difficulties. Um, and their backup fuel tank, their supplementary fuel tank, wasn't operating. So they, 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 they didn't have enough fuel in the first place. So they're short of fuel. They can't see the target in Kokura. And the nearest the secondary target was Nagasaki because it's on the same southern island in, um, in, in, in Japan and not all that, you know, 100 miles away. It's not all that far away. So they headed for Nagasaki. And as someone said, in that moment, you know, Kokura lived and Nagasaki died. It was, it was completely driven, driven by the weather. So that's why it was chosen. And, and that's what happened. They flew down to Nagasaki. By now, fuel was you know, was 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 really short. They only had one one enough for one bombing run on Nagasaki. It was cloudy, and then the clouds opened, and they could see an opportunity. They didn't hit the target, which was a little bit further away, closer to where the docks are, but they hit the the main uh, industrial area where the foundries, the factories. And indeed, one of these, one of the prison camps was. So that's where they, that's where they dropped the bomb. And of the two camps, the the nearest was 1.1 miles away from the detonation point of the bomb. Prisoner testimony is quite haunting, and there is quite a lottery as to whether you survive the blast or not. One of the two RAF POWs who were working in a building. When the bomb goes off, one of them ran for the bomb shelter and the other stayed in the building. The building collapsed and the man who stayed in it was pulled alive from the wreckage, but, the, but his friend who ran for the shelter was killed. Yes, I, it, it was a miracle, really, that there were in the camp nearest, there were 195 prisoners in the, in the second camp of 450, but it was a little bit further away. Um, although, you know, there were lots of um, flying glass and people were blown off their feet in the, in the more distant camp. But when, when, the, when the bomb went off, people were as- astonished when they sort of came to to find that the whole camp had just been wiped out. There was nothing left. And they were lucky because they'd built some bomb shelters, small bomb shelters, because um, Nagasaki had been bombed by the Allies a, a week eight days before on the 1st of August. So there were bomb shelters, there were buildings, and that made an absolutely critical difference to survival. So of the 195, eight died, one, seven Dutch and one British died. And the survivors, um, all of them, basically, uh, or almost all of them, were inside, we, you know, had some protection. And they were 1.1 miles, and within, within a radius of one mile, no, no one survived, basically. The radius they were in, they went outside the doors of the camp and ordinary Japanese civilians who were outside had died, but they'd lived. So they were amazingly lucky. It was just where, where you were. One man describes being, he was outside and they were at a huge sort of mountain of scrap. And he was on one side of it and some Dutch prisoners were on the other. And they died and he survived because he was sheltered in, from the position of the bomb. So um, it, it, some, of it was, uh, some of it was luck. Some of the descriptions are harrowing, like the 16-year-old postboy with his skin peeling off his back. In the aftermath of the explosion, 
was there a shared experience between the people of the city and the POWs? The city, as best it could, had a kind of instinctive feeling was to run, there's Nagasaki's in a bowl with hills, um, was to run up to the hills where maybe the air was purer, a second bomb was less likely to drop because they had no idea what this bomb was. You know, we, we know what an atomic bomb is, but they didn't know what it was. The prisoners had no idea. They just thought this was, you know, this was some sort of end of the world. They had, they had, so that's an up there, um, uh, you know, a couple of doctors from the camps uh, help civilian Japanese. There are quite a few examples of prisoners. One of the prisoners I interviewed, you know, gave some water to some Japanese children. But I think the destruction was on such a scale and such a level that they felt impotent. There was very little really that they could do. But yes, there was a sense of shared experience. And um, as you say, there's vivid descriptions of um, coming out of the camp. Ron Breyer, my sort of main character, emerges from his bomb shelter, having been semi-knocked out, to find the camp has disappeared. And he saw about 100 Japanese um, just running, he says, like wild animals um, in, in a hunt with you know, blisters hanging down from their arms, burnt faces. They were just running for, and they were silent as they ran. They just ran past him uh, looking, you know, looking, looking for safety. And the other extraordinary thing was that uh, people noticed that on concrete, by a bridge, for example, there'd just be a shadow in the concrete where a person was when the bomb dropped and they were just now shadows. There is the famous picture from Hiroshima with the shadow up the, up the steps. Yes, yeah. So the same phenomenon in um, in Nagasaki. Absolutely horrifying. The Dutch airman Claude Velloni says that the houses on the hills were squashed like matchboxes. Yeah, there was there, there there was there was very little left. You know, an on odd, a little bit of a building, a, uh, a telephone pole that had somehow survived and sank. But amazingly, uh, and I find this quite really quite hard. But it, I, I know it happened. The Australians, there were about eight of them to, who were together and obviously made, they came out, a couple had been injured. They came out of the camp, there was nothing there. And they saw a horse and cart sort of waiting there like a taxi on a rank. And, you know, they couldn't believe that everything else had been destroyed. And there was this sort of, obviously, probably not, not the finest piece of, um, you know, horse um, uh, that you've ever, you've ever seen. But it gave them a chance to put the injured men on the back of the cart and... One of them was a, you know, was a countryman um, from Victoria who was very good with horses, and they worked their way through the debris of the city until they got to the foothills and could then work their way up to the, you know, to, to relative safety at the top of the hills. So there are images like that that really stick in your mind. John, I'm sitting here speechless, and that doesn't happen very often on this podcast. Good. I'm completely and utterly speechless because I can talk for England, but this has been eye-opening it has been harrowing and I could probably make a very long list of words that could describe this but I I just want to say thank you so much for joining us and I really hope people go out and buy this book because I know that this is on my Amazon wish list right now. Thank you I think that interestingly the people who've read the book so far and it's you know just come out a they find it quite a gripping read and because there's a sense of hope of resilience and survival by the end. Although the story is brutal, really brutal, actually people do emerge. Humanity does emerge at the other end. So it's a more positive book to read than one might imagine, if I might say that. But I'm pleased you're interested in it. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. 
Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.